0: So, I wanted to do some episodes about my novel, The Honours, because first of all, people have been writing me since back when the show was a blog, asking, can you do an episode where you look at your own work? Uh, Maybe explain how you wrote it, the process you went through. And up until now, I've resisted because, honestly, I didn't want to come off as like a self-important pillock, which... Yes, he's rather judgmental, especially as, you know, I've been, I go on about how it's okay for writers to talk about their own work and we should normalise being happy and proud of our work and and glad of the work we've done and not feeling like we have to dig our toe into the carpet and go, God, I really shouldn't mention that I've written a book. It it should be something that we all support in one another. That seems healthy. Um, I I, I guess I feel vulnerable. Uh, because I know your time is valuable you know you you, I don't suggest that I've got some like magnetic charisma that would make you listen to whatever I say and say you listen to this because the content helps you in some way and I I don't want to make the mistake of exploiting your goodwill to meet my need for validation right by talking about my own work and going can you just say that my work's good but I mean it does I guess it does seem weird not to talk about my own Writing at all in a show about writing. It's like I'm eliding it. Uh, it's an area where at least I've got uh, rhetorical authority, right? I can talk about my own work. Um, I'm free to excerpt from it because it's mine. I, I can talk about it and be honest. And um, so, yeah, you know, at least if I talk about my experience rather than just asserting statements about writing, at least, you know, you know that I'm talking from personal experience, from lived experience but the, so the the second reason that I'm doing it is I've got a new book coming out next year called The Ice House which is the sequel to The Honors um uh, you don't have to have read The Honors to understand it but it is in the same world and and, I, and again like I even just talk about it now I my you can't see my body language but I'm shrugging into myself I feel that same vulnerability talking about it the same thing that i encourage other people not to have i think partly because to put work out there is to invite it to be judged you know i'm really happy with how it's come out i worked really hard on it but you know you just don't actually you just don't know until people read it and the other thing of course is that writing is is my is my source of income it's my main source of income And if people choose not to buy my books, if they don't like them or if they just ignore them, I I can't earn a living from writing and I'm not qualified to do anything else. So, you know, the the bottom line is my fear of not being able to earn a living has finally outweighed my fear of talking about my own work. Uh, The whole thing isn't going to be like a massive advert. I hope I'm making it interesting rather than a kind of Christmas appeal. But look, if these shows aren't for you, if this isn't what you signed up for by listening to the podcast, I completely understand. Uh, and look, throughout, I am going to be plying you with precious, subtle and explicit, to buy my novel The Honours and to pre-order The Ice House. But in return, I'm, I'm going to try and give you some really fascinating content, some stuff I've worked hard on with uh, lots of research and background that hopefully will open your eyes to some stuff you didn't know anything about some worlds you didn't know and maybe give you the keys to moving forward with your own writing on some level so in the show notes to each episode including this one and on my website timclarepoet.co.uk there's purchase links where you can click and in like one two clicks you can grab yourself a copy of the honors or if you've already done so depending on when you're listening to this you could please consider you know ordering a copy as a christmas gift or otherwise for someone that you love i've also put in the show notes and on my website pre-order links for my next novel the ice house which is due out in may 2019 you don't like i say you don't have to have read the honors to enjoy it but it's in the same world so they certainly enrich one another um i know i i know that you're that listeners to Death of a Thousand Cuts are are, are great. Uh, you're really awesome and a wonderful a really lovely community. And I, I, it stuns me actually that all my all my interactions with listeners of this podcast is yeah, it's weird. I've been really positive, and um, I'm I'm very lucky. Uh, and so I don't want to be like a dick and make people feel uncomfortable by talking about my own work or asking. Um, in a way that might seem manipulative. Like, you've been such a support. So I'm asking you, knowing that it's OK if you say no, or if you just don't respond. Uh, so my, my my request is please buy the honours and pre-order my next novel, The Ice House. Like, I was like doing the maths to this. Uh, I spoke to a friend who worked in publishing, and she said, like, the threshold to be more or less guaranteed getting into the UK bestseller lists is about 1500 copies sold in a week which is a lot right that's a lot but i kind of like crunched the numbers and i didn't do much crunching it wasn't a difficult equation it wasn't like it wasn't like equations and maths scrawled on the walls of my room i just just used the calculator on my phone but if one in every four people who listen to this podcast in a week, uh, made a decision to support it by pre-ordering The Ice House, then in its launch week, it'll be a bestseller, which would be life-changing for me. So I hope you don't mind my asking. It is a selfish ask, right? I'm just thinking you make me a can you you support my career and also make me a best-selling author it's like well we could i mean it's interest that's a fine tim but why why would we want to you haven't made the uh, you haven't made a hugely compelling case apart from it would make me happy this is right but but there there you go just as my brazenly so brazenly self-serving christmas appeal. Which is just, hey, guys, do do you you want want to personally enrich me by doing something for me? Um, I haven't got, I mean, like, to be honest, I haven't got a a better reason except, you know, that would be really nice for me. It would help me continue my career. Okay, so, you know, there's that. But um, it would just be great. So uh, what I will say is, like, do let me know if you pre-order, by the way, because I'd like to say thank you um uh that's not a uh, that's not a euphemism for anything just a literal thank you um but also i'll put a link up i spoke to the like wonderful people at mr b's emporium who are a an independent bookshop based in bath i will say they they do worldwide shipping if you pre-order with them i'll put a link up and you can just go through they've set up a special link so you can pre-order the Ice House, and they were amazing with the honours. They really like championed it and pressed it into people's hands. But and you can, which and you can get it, you can get the honours from them as well. But if you pre order the Ice House via them, um I will make sure that I drop into that store sometime before release when they get copies in, and I'll sign everyone myself. And uh you know, it might seem a bit hubristic, but if they get more than let's say a hundred pre-orders um one that would be amazing for them i know that they've just been expanding and i'd really really like to see independent bookstores be supported i think they just do an amazing job and they've been particularly kind to me but if they get more than a hundred pre-orders then i will i'll create some kind of like exclusive small exclusive content that i'll send out with all get all the books something you know written that can be folded up go in with them uh related to the world but that would be that'd be that'd be ideal anyway that's the pitch um and I wanted to get it I wanted to get all this stuff out like this week so I'm not doing this at the beginning of every episode because that would be that would be a that would be hell wouldn't it so I just uh, thank you for listening basically uh because this kind of stuff is important to me it's um, it turns out that this little bit of sort of like hustling is the price of entry for being a writer you know this is how I make my living and so this is what I have to do to to do it but um I'm not going to do it every episode thank you so today rather than just focusing on myself and uh, my own personal emotional needs I'm going to give you some history that explains the tradition I'm I was writing into and against when I wrote the honours, and why I really, really care about it, because notwithstanding authors' tendency to to valorise their own craft, I think stories are important. I think they're demonstrably important. The narratives we choose, the stories we tell. A, a vexed debate has taken place recently about genre. Is such and such a novel literary fiction? Is it fantasy? Where are the lines? For me. Far more important than asking what a story is, is asking what a story does. It's my contention that stories, particularly fantasy, science fiction and adventure stories, get special access to the levers of our hearts and minds. And because of this, they have tremendous power. And I don't think that power has always been used for good. The Honours is about a 13-year-old girl called Delphine. It's set in England in 1935. A few people have read it by now, which is lucky. And a common compliment that I've received when I'm getting feedback from people has been, uh, I wish I'd been like Delphine when I was 13. Which, I must admit, surprised me. So today I, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about highwaymen and headmasters, how the establishment tried to change what sort of monsters children believed in, and how they were so tremendously successful that some of those monsters became real. You might have seen the picture The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters by Goya, published in 1799. It's this black and white image and it depicts a figure fallen asleep at a writing desk and above him loom these dark, mutant bat creatures. It was part of a series in which Goya criticised the ignorance and superstition of the ruling classes and the decline of rationality in Spanish society. The sleep of reason produces monsters. A few years after Goya's pictures came out, in the late Georgian and early Victorian era, The Penny Dreadful was king. Penny Dreadfuls rose out of the gothic thriller tradition, which were mostly about young heirs cheated of their inheritances by scheming relatives and locked in fetid castles filled with dank cellars and secret passageways. Successful tales had titles like The Maniac Father, The Pirate's Bride and Geralda, The Demon Nun. One of the most successful publishers of Penny Dreadfuls was a man called Edward Lloyd. He was immensely successful and as well as printing cheap tales of horror and suspense he took advantage of uh, the era's lax copyright laws to release knock-off versions of Dickens's novels as fast as Dickens could write them, the equivalent of those bootleg Disney DVDs in the bargain bin at Asda. Who could resist the delights of titles like Nicholas Nickleberry, Martin Guzzlewit, and my personal favourite, Oliver Twist. And these sold by the cartload. Every time Dickens put out a new instalment of his current novel, pirate versions would appear a few days later. And and, and we know that Dickens was really pissed off because in appropriately gothic mode... He threatened to hang his imitators, quote, on gibbets so lofty and enduring that their remains shall be a monument to our just vengeance to all succeeding ages. End quote. He took the pirates to court and lost. One of Edward Lloyd's most famous Penny Dreadfuls was Varney the Vampire, a.k.a. The Feast of Blood, the story of Sir Francis Varney possibly the long-lost Marmaduke Bannerworth of Bannerworth Hall, a man cursed with vampirism after betraying a royalist to Oliver Cromwell and killing his son in a fit of anger. The story was immensely popular, running to 220 chapters or nearly 667,000 words. Varney died several times, came back to life and, as the story went on, was portrayed more and more as a victim of his curse rather than a pure monster. The serial culminates in a final scene where, disguised as a wealthy Englishman, Varney has a guide take him up Vesuvius, where he announces You will say that you accompanied Varney the Vampire to the crater of Mount Vesuvius and that, tired and disgusted with a life of horror, he flung himself in to prevent the possibility of a reanimation of his remains. Before the guide could utter anything but a shriek, Varney took one tremendous leap and disappeared into the burning mouth of the mountain. Remember, if you're ever asked how you'd like to die, the best answer is, disclose vampirism to stranger, leap into volcano. People like Varney were the sort of anti-heroes that the largely working-class readers of Penny Dreadfuls loved. The unlucky, the cursed, they were escaped criminals, highwaymen and outsiders, flawed but well-meaning folk ripped off by landlords, swindled by greedy merchants or broken down by bullying employers and draconian laws. Perhaps the most famous was highwayman Dick Turpin with his sidekick, the Blue Dwarf, another heir Disenfranchised by his hideous appearance. In the words of historian E.S. Turner, quote, if their hero put himself on the wrong side of the law in order to fight organised wickedness masquerading as virtue, the issue, as far as the public was concerned, was still between good and bad. Indeed, the stories would regularly editorialise on this very subject. They'd break out of the story to talk about it. Here's an extract from The Blue Dwarf, published in 1870. Quote Many modern ways of making money are infinitely more nefarious than taking it by force. The cheating done by lawyers and brokers whose clients trust them, the 101 ways of levying blackmail by men in power and with influence in any place of trust, the disgraceful sweating exercised in professions where such mean tricks were never supposed to have been heard of, are infinitely more despicable than highway robbery. End quote. GWM Reynolds, writer of various heart-rending domestic fables of poor women sold into a life of slavery and vice, would even throw in diagrams mid-story, breaking down British class structure and showing how nobility and the clergy preyed upon the working man. As these stories grew in popularity, the conservative press wrung its hands over the subversive effect it feared they would have upon the working classes. The right-wing Quarterly Review complained, quote, in a lane not far from Fleet Street is a complete factory of the literature of rascaldom. A literature which has done much to people our prisons, our reformatories and our colonies with scapegraces and ne'er-do-wells. Lawlessness and violence are the subjects of the writer's fondest admiration and the severer matter is pleasingly seasoned with love seasons of the luscious kind – which are almost as offensive in their way as the performances of certain young lady novelists of higher rank. Something had to be done. These stories were not just being read by the maids, they were being written by them. The establishment fought back. Most successful in the early wave of the conservative backlash in the 1860s and 70s was the character Jack Harkaway, whose adventures followed him from schoolboy to Oxford scholar to world-travelling adventurer. He was the quintessential Englishman, insofar as he was a selfish, racist asshole. In one scene during Jack's school days, he takes exception to a fellow pupil who is a bit foreign-looking. Quote, You're not a true Englishman, he said. There's a touch of the tar brush about you which shows you're not a white man, end quote. Bear in mind the writers intend us to be rooting for Jack in this scene. He's supposed to be the hero. We're supposed to be wanting him to win. Now listen to how incredibly measured and diplomatic the other boys' responses are. Jack says, quote, There is some of the bandit blood in you. That is my misfortune, not my fault, even if it is true. Fellows like you require to be kept down and have some of the cur knocked out of them. Do you call me that? Yes, a half-bred Spanish cur, answered Jack. End quote. They fight, and of course Jack soundly thrashes him, but then the foreigner pulls an unsporting move, about which the narrator complains, quote, To go behind a man and hit him on the head with a cricket bat, exerting all your strength, was not English end quote. First of all, yes it is. I would suggest hitting someone with a cricket bat is more or less the most English way you can assault them, short of flinging tea in their face or running them over with a replacement bus service. Second, don't dish it out if you can't take it. Jack hurls racist abuse at a fellow pupil who resists the bait. Then Jack physically attacks him. Then he has the gall to be outraged when the fellow retaliates. It's like he's a ghastly avatar for the entire British Empire. Quote, Jack Harkaway had fought a fair fight and won it in a handsome British manner. Why should he be attacked in this disgraceful manner? And by a youth who could only boast of half English blood. End quote. And it's this attitude, this genuine aggrieved conviction that the pompous British aggressor is somehow the victim that informs almost all the work that would follow. Just like the Penny Dreadfuls, Jack's stories were salted with moral pronouncements, but instead of being in favour of freedom and bringing down the corrupt and powerful, they went out to bat for authority and the status quo. In one scene, after he gets punished, we're told, quote, he knew he'd been wrong and had sense enough to know that order could not reign in the school if the boys did not obey their masters, end quote. When Jack dreams of running away, the narrator steps in, Let us not be misunderstood. We are no advocates for running away. Boys who run away from school generally turn out scamps in afterlife. They show an independence of action and a strong self-will in which it is very injurious for the young to indulge. An independence of action and a strong self-will. Oh dear reader, please. Anything but that. But still, surprisingly, working class readers didn't warm to this wealthy racist bully in quite the same way they had to Robin Hood and Dick Turpin. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Enter Alfred Harmsworth. Alfred C. Harmsworth started out as a young freelance journalist before founding his own press empire, the Amalgamated Press. He was a... Genuine genius at marketing and coming up with promotions, like a competition where readers could win £2 a week for life by guessing the weight of gold in the vaults at the Bank of England. Later, he would be granted the title Lord Northcliffe. In the 1890s, he launched his first boys' papers, the Ha'penny Marvel and the Ha'penny Wonder. The first edition of the Marvel bore the slogan, quote, no more penny dreadfuls. These healthy stories of mystery, adventure, etc. will kill them, End quote. An editorial made the paper's mission explicit, quote, The penny dreadful makes thieves of the coming generation and so helps fill our jails. If we can rid the world of even one of these vile publications, our efforts will not have been in vain. Harmsworth believed he could improve the lower classes with sound moral fables starring heroes acceptable to the British establishment. His publications all had brilliantly self-important subtitles like comic cuts, amusing without being vulgar. Instead of hunchbacks, pirates, vagabonds and female horse-rustlers, Harmsworth's press offered heroes like Ferrer's Lord, inventor and, quote, one of the richest men the world had ever known. End quote. Ferrer's Lord battled evil Russian plutocrats in his self made submarine. An accompanying editorial boasted, quote, "There is no limit to the power of colossal wealth when wealth is linked with brain. End quote. but Harmsworth had other ideals which he wanted to spread to the masses. He was a staunch believer in the military and national service, and, like so many believers in the military and national service, never served a day in his life. His network of boys' papers began running increasingly paranoid, xenophobic stories about imagined invasions of Britain. In 1900, the boys' friend ran a cover image of Big Ben exploding below the caption, Bombardment of London, the French at our doors. The Wonder ran a serial called Britain Invaded, where German troops staged simultaneous dawn landings at Hull, Boston, Cromer, Lowestoft and Frinton, as you do. Germans occupy all London, north of the Thames in the story, led by the diabolical Baron von Kranz, who snatches the keys to the Bank of England. The free South Londoners read headlines, all conveniently in Harmsworth-owned papers, listing German ultimatums, Britain to pay indemnity of £100 million, half the navy to be surrendered to Germany. Disarmament and submission to German rule. The story shows people reading another Harmsworth paper, The Evening News, described in World as "the smartest of the afternoon journals, and reproduces a full editorial from that paper that reads: quote: "The great fact remains, and the blame with it lies, not with our military or naval leaders, but with those above them. We are not ready." We've been taken unprepared. The greatest military nation of the age has caught us napping. Thanks to this belief in our security, we have been sleeping, dreaming of universal peace. This is our awakening. Quote. So to recap, Harmsworth had one of his children's papers, The Wonder, run an imaginary invasion story almost solely to create a fictional world in which he could portray his adult papers saying, told you so, and... This ideological line that we are in danger, that we are loathed round the world by jealous aggressors and we must wake up, was repeated again and again and again, year after year in every Harmsworth publication for boys. Harmsworth's Boys Herald, subtitled A Healthy Paper for Manly Boys, in 1908 contained an editorial that said, quote, It is no secret that the Britisher is hated abroad. In many countries, a Britisher is not safe from insult or assault. In parts of Germany, to give one example, our countrymen are openly reviled and sneered at. Why? Because of our huge possessions and colonies, because of our prosperity as a nation, because of our enterprise and grit. Foreign nations are jealous of our progress. Foreign spies in Great Britain and our possessions abroad have for years been gathering information with regard to our fortifications and defences, the weak points on our coastline and a thousand other items invaluable to a power intending one day to strike a blow at us. This fictional mixture of paranoia, racism and melodrama proved immensely profitable, So profitable, in fact, that Harmsworth decided to transfer it to his most popular adult newspaper, The Daily Mail. I know, who could have guessed that The Daily Mail was the masterwork of a super-rich paranoid racist? In 1906, Harmsworth offered to serialise the work of a part-time thriller writer called William Lequeur. The story was called The Invasion of 1910. Lecure had spent several weeks touring England in a motor car to plot out the most plausible route for a German invasion. He then refined the route with help from Lord Roberts, the field marshal who invented concentration camps during the Second Boer War. Roberts believed national service was essential to maintaining Britain's moral fibre. Over 26,000 women and children died in his camps. When Laqueur showed Harmsworth the proposed route for the invasion, several accounts claim Harmsworth complained that it missed all the major cities where the Daily Mail circulation was the highest. A, quote, crestfallen Laqueur was forced to withdraw it, so the German assault approached from London via Brentwood, Colchester and Swindon. Throughout the story, as published, British citizens cry out repeatedly, quote, We should have listened to Lord Roberts, end quote. Harmsworth launched Le Coeur's story by hiring veterans to wear sandwich boards while dressed in full German uniform and the Prussian spiked helmet, or Pickelhaube. After it ran in the Daily Mail, the invasion of 1910 was translated into 27 languages and sold over a million copies. Part of Harmsworth's success in supplanting the penny dreadful was realising that while the right are crap at creating sympathetic heroes, they are great at inventing terrifying baddies. He printed baseless reports that Germany were building the new Dreadnought-class of ship faster than England, invited Daily Mail readers to write in with reports of quote, suspicious foreigners, end quote, which, yeah, is kind of pushing at an open door, right? and he duly forwarded all the letters he received to Parliament. Now, Parliament dismissed them as scaremongering, but the Daily Mail was Britain's best-selling paper, and popular paranoia continued to grow. Now, not all of Britain was in the grip of this mania. In 1909, P.G. Woodhouse satirised the Harmsworth-led rash of invasion stories with The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England he made a point of pushing the genre further than any of his rivals. Quote, England was not merely beneath the heel of the invader. It was beneath the heel of nine invaders. There was barely standing room. Germans, Russians, the Swiss, Moroccan bandits, Turks, the Somalians, and even the Chinese have a go, attacking during August. The British prove so blasé that even when the invasion is full swing, they're just kind of annoyed at all the fuss. Quote, It was inevitable in the height of the silly season that such a topic as the simultaneous invasion of Great Britain by nine foreign powers should be seized upon by the press, end quote. The public are much more interested in the cricket, and one newspaper in- billboard in the story reads, Surrey doing badly, above, German army lands in England. But Woodhouse was very much swimming against the tide. In 1910, an American newspaper wrote, quote, It will be a marvel if relations with Germany are not strained until war becomes inevitable as a direct result of the war scare campaign, inaugurated and carried on with the most reckless and maddening ingenuity by the Northcliffe Syndicate of Papers. Indeed, once the conflict had started, the star wrote, Next to the Kaiser, Lord Northcliffe, that's Alfred Harmsworth, has done more than any living man to bring about the war. I think that's what got to me as I researched all this. I thought how the wide-eyed ten-year-olds who read William Licker's serial about the invasion of Britain, who read all those stories in the Harmsworth boys' papers, were, by 1914, turning 18. And they went to war with these... Romantic images from Harmsworth story papers of lone heroes sailing under the Channel with a gigantic mechanical claw and sinking the entire German fleet of battles that were over in weeks. And they were slaughtered in their hundreds of thousands. The closest war came to Harmsworth was when the Germans killed his gardener. Alfred Harmsworth died in August 1922, and it's around this time that Delphine, the main character of the Honours, is born. She's born into a world where the war is over, but the legacy of Harmsworth's work lives on. By blurring the line between fact and fiction, by bringing children's serials into Britain's most popular newspaper and placing them next to testimonials from decorated military figures, by monetizing fear, Harmsworth transformed Britain into a nation of frothing, credulous conspiracy theorists. After his death, his brother continued the amalgamated press with titles like The Champion and The Magnet, in an era where a confluence of record national literacy rates, cheap paper, the wireless and the growth of cinema made promulgating paranoid right-wing fantasies easier and more profitable than ever. From Chinese opium gangs to ancient Hindu death cults, from Bolsheviks subverting the government to cabals of avaricious Jewish financiers fomenting war to line their pockets, the British had become completely unable to distinguish fact from fiction. On October 25th 1924, four days before the general election, the Daily Mail printed a letter from Grigory Zinoviev, president of the Communist International, ordering the unleashing of class war in Britain and giving instructions for organising ter- terrorist activities. The Mail's headline read, quote, Civil war plot by socialists. Moscow order to our Reds. A great plot discovered yesterday. End quote. An editorial blasted Labour. Quote, now we see why Mr. MacDonald has done obeisance throughout the campaign to the red flag with its association of murder and crime. He is a stalking horse for the Reds. End quote. The Conservatives won the election with a comfortable majority. It later transpired the letter was a forgery planted on the Foreign Office by British Intelligence and Conservative Central Office. Meanwhile, William Lequeux, who by this time was a millionaire, was publishing his autobiography Things I Know About Kings, Celebrities and Crooks in which he claimed to have received a secret letter from Rasputin revealing the identity of Jack the Ripper. And to be absolutely clear in the honours when we meet Delphine she believes all of this. You know, when I go into schools now I teach kids who weren't born when 9-11 happened. For them... It remains this mythic semi-real event, this foundational trauma out of which all the chaos of our modern world has sprung. Delphine wasn't even alive for the Great War, but in the book it's 1935 and she has spent her entire life steeped in its legacy and Harmsworth's fevered, paranoid mythology... It's in her comics, it's on the wireless, it's at the pictures. Indeed, if anything, children's story papers in the 30s had got more conservative, harking as they did back to the glory days before the empire began to crumble. She and her family have come to live in this country house, Alderbaran Hall, with various eccentric residents. And in the extract I'm about to read you, she's overheard something, and she's trying to tell her father, who is a veteran of the Great War, Like so many men who went to war, it's not clear how much of him came back. She finds him here in this scene, and he's in the old stables, painting. Daddy. He put his palette down and took a tobacco tin from the crate. He began rolling a cigarette. Yes. I need to tell you something. Daddy worked the cigarette paper back and forth between the thumb and fingers of his left hand. Dry paint flaked from his fingernails tell. The first day Mother and I got here, before you arrived. Perhaps it was the fumes, but she felt the start of a headache. I was walking around the house. I overheard a conversation. Daddy stuck the cigarette between his incisors like a toothpick. He retrieved a matchbook from his pocket. You've been listening at keyholes again, haven't you? No, I... She was about to fib, but something in his eyes made her reconsider. There was a hole in the wall, The West Wing is full of holes. I never meant to spy. They were talking so loudly. Daddy flipped open the matchbook and tore out a match. Who? I think one of them was Mr Prop. He dragged the match down the rough strip. It did not light. You shouldn't eavesdrop. We're guests here. Daddy, he said there's going to be a war. Then there probably is. He struck the match and it lit with a noise like someone ripping open a present. His face rippled purple and orange. He made a cave with his hand and brought the flame to the tip of his cigarette. He said they'd been taking trips over the channel for secret talks. Who was he saying this to? I... I don't know. An old man. An old man. Daddy blew smoke over his shoulder. Go to the library. You're to spend the afternoon reading silently. But I won't have you slandering our hosts. But he said, you've told me what he said. You're not listening, they... Out. Now. He picked up his palette. Delphine took a deep breath, bunched her fists. Daddy, I think the Bolsheviks are plotting to kill me. Daddy leant back on the stool. His shoulders began to shake. The tremors moved to his arms and head and it was only when he opened his mouth that she realised he was laughing. He took a pull on his cigarette and swung round to face her. Oh, Delphi. His painting hand settled on her shoulder. Gauze crackled as it gripped. One whiff of a foreign accent. And you think you're Richard Hannay. Richard Hannay is the protagonist of The 39 Steps, a thriller where an ordinary man uncovers a spy ring in Great Britain and foils an invasion just days before the outbreak of the First World War. The author, John Buchan, wrote four more Hannay novels after the 39 steps and they get increasingly xenophobic and paranoid, culminating in the final Hannay adventure published in 1935, a last blast against the complacency of British passivism called The Island of Sheep. In the honours also set in 1935, Delphine's political proclivities mean her suspicions come to centre on the only two non-white residents of Aldebaran Hall, Mr Kung, who has been displaced by the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, and enigmatic guru Ivan Prop, a dancer teacher of Armenian descent. Here's a scene where Delphine encounters Prop and the hall's resident physician, Dr Lansley. Delphine hurried through the corridor. She was hungry. She thought about the siege of Antioch where the Crusaders were starving to death and plundering villages for food and deserting and some of them began hallucinating from hunger and having visions of God and as she rounded the corner she crashed into Mr. Prop. Oh! Delphine dropped her Mars bar. Prop took a step back, rubbing his paunch. In the empty corridor they stared at one another. His big grey eyes did not blink. His mouth was half-disguised behind his drooping white moustache. Sorry, said Delphine. With a grunt, he began to sink. His smooth scalp tilted towards her and one pinstriped leg bent until his knee was almost touching the floor. Ivan? Dr Lansley was coming up the corridor. He wore a checked cravat tucked haphazardly into his jacket. What on earth are you bowing for? Prop rose. He looked at his palm. The Mars bar sat in his thick, tanned fingers. He turned the black wrapper so the name faced up, red letters on a white stripe. Lansley appeared at his shoulder. Side by side, the two men were stark opposites. Dr Lansley, a tall, skinny wraith of middling years with pale cheeks, oily black hair, black deaf-aid and a coal-smudged moustache above a thin, frowning mouth. Mr Prop, a plump, short figure. Old but hearty, round-faced with a shaven head, a brownish complexion and a lush, bone-coloured moustache that framed a full-lipped smile. In Lansley's severe, haughty demeanour, Delphine saw an unbroken lineage all the way back to the Norman conquerors, but prop contained a little of everything. Egyptian skin, a broad Siberian nose, and eyes tinged with dry Asiatic glamour. In his patient canny composure, he could have been Jew or Norseman or ancient Tibetan hermit. Lansley was old England, but Prop was the world. Prop uncurled his fingers. He held out the Mars bar. She reached for it, half expecting his hand to snap shut. God of war, he said. So, what's Delphine's solution to all this fear, this threat? Well, the same as Britain's was in 1910 and 1935. Frantic rearmament. In the last scene I'm going to read, Delphine is with the head gamekeeper of Alderbaran Hall, Mr Garforth, helping him feed the hens and desperately trying to convince him to let her have a shotgun. When the last hen was pecking at grain, she looked at him again. I already know all about guns. How could you possibly know about guns? Delphine gazed down at the feeding hens and thought of a sheriff crouched amongst boulders on a windswept maser, picking off Red Indians with his 1873 Winchester lever-action rifle. Their hallooing war cries in his ears and the taste of salt on his lips as he loaded another magazine, took aim, squeezed the trigger. She thought of a Detective inspector brandishing his heavy police pistol as he thundered down a wooden jetty after scar puckered platinum smugglers. She thought of Rogers of the Machine Gun Corps ripping through Bosch with his Vickers gun while the boys dragged Jenkins into cover and used a pocket knife sterilized in a candle flame to dig shrapnel out of his thigh. She thought of pages crackling beneath her fingertips, the taste of butterscotch candies, her toes warm under the quilt the smell of ink and paper, the refuge, the horror. Research, she said. Research. Delphine waited for him to say more. When she glanced up, he was watching her with thin, canny eyes the colour of tea. Well then, expert, he said. Answer me this. When a soldier looks into his enemy's eyes, what does he most fear to see? Delphine tutted. That's not a gun question. Certainly it's a gun question. She hesitated. Hatred. Mr Garforth shook his head. You don't know anything. What's the answer then? It's no good telling. You have to learn it. So teach me, she said. Please. Mr Garforth walked to the third and final row of sitting boxes. Give me one good reason. Delphine knelt by the first door in line. The latch was stiff. We might get invaded. By who? The latch gave. Bolsheviks. You don't even know what that means. I do. Mr Garforth leant forward on his cane. Go on them. Delphine lowered the door. She lifted out the soft white hen. Well, I didn't say it would definitely be Bolsheviks. They were just an example. What on earth makes you think there'll be an invasion? She fumbled the string and had to grope around for it, hen clutched to her chest. Nothing. She worked the loop over sharp, splayed toes, pulled it tight. Anyway, if you teach me to shoot, I can help control vermin. Like Bolsheviks. Like foxes. So to return to what I said right at the beginning, remember that? (laughs) About how people who've enjoyed the book, have said they wish they'd been more like Delphine. Why is that? That is, if we discount the possibility that they're saying, wow, Tim, I wish I'd been more of a paranoid racist gun fanatic. Well, I do think Delphine has some good qualities. She's brave. She's smart. She's persistent. She's loyal. She has some fantasies of glory, but mostly she's motivated by protecting her family and keeping the country safe and you know if you're anything like me bearded Capricorn enjoys long walks actually I don't enjoy long walks I enjoy long sits but if you're anything like me you've probably fantasized about what it would be like instead of hiding from your fears to grab some homemade grenades and a double-barreled shotgun and hunt them down an independence of action and a strong self-will in lots of ways, for me at least, Delphine is England in the 1930s. This weird pathological brood born out of trauma and fear and, and a genuine desire to protect. And, like England in 1910, like England in 1935, the worst of those fears may be about to come true. In 1935, Olaf Stapleton released Odd John, one of the first great modern progressive science fiction novels. In it, a group of super beings emerge, led by the titular John, who declares himself a member of the new master race, Homo Superior. John goes from the occasional pragmatic murder to genocide, exterminating an entire island of native people, so his group of super beings has somewhere secluded to live. Eventually, Blockaded in a military showdown with world powers, John and his master race choose to commit suicide rather than submit. The narrator, who is a normal human, starts off in awe of John and as the atrocities get worse, he convinces himself that the doubts he feels are in fact evidence of his own moral and intellectual failings. Quote, For my part, such is my faith in John that, though I cannot approve, I cannot condemn. There must surely be some aspect that I am too stupid or insensitive to grasp. John, I feel, must be right. Though he did what would have been utterly wrong if it had been done by any of us, I have an almost passionate faith that, done by John, and in John's circumstances, the terrible deed was right. End quote. Given what was to come in the decade after its release, Odd John is a fantastic chillingly prescient novel. Later, during the war, Stapledon would give a speech to a military audience where he addressed the question, is there an English spirit? I'm going to close by quoting from Robert Crossley's excellent biography of Stapledon, speaking for the future. Quote, Stapledon denied that the biological Englishman had any more reality than Hitler's Aryan. But he affirmed a cultural tradition of 900 years standing that England stood for a humane spirit, for conventions of forbearance towards differences and for moral indignation in the face of brutality. The tradition had been violated often enough, but there was enough truth in it to make it worth preserving. He summarised his English inheritance thus. One may be reasonably proud of being English, as long as one is also ashamed. I'm proud to be the fellow countrymen of Shakespeare and Newton, ashamed of the slave traders, the industrial exploiters, the imperial adventurers. I'm proud of Milton and Keats, Darwin and Kelvin, Arkwright and James Watt, Robert Owen and the Toll Martyrs, ashamed of the Black and Tans, of the Amritsar Massacre, of the treatment of the unemployed, proud of British gentleness, some call it squeamishness, and ashamed of our vile snobbery. Now, I should add, in service of our other great national failing, pedantry, that, of course, several people he mentions are British, not English. And yes, he doesn't mention any women in that speech, and he ought to have. But still. I hope, if you choose to read the honours, you get to feel that conflict he's talking about viscerally. The story's heart is Delphine, part Dick Turpin, part Jack Harkaway. I've tried to write about the struggle we all face between reason and monsters, between the stories that make us proud and the stories that make us deeply, deeply ashamed. Thank you very much for listening and links are in the show notes.